Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Deirdre McCluskey is Distinguished Professor of Economics, History, English, and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and the author of most recently, The Bourgeois Virtues, Ethics for an Age of Commerce. Deirdre, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for, uh, for calling, Russ. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, the Bourgeois Virtues, the first volume, which is the volume we're going to talk about today, is a part of a rather ambitious project. Uh, part of that is uh, a defense of capitalism. And when I hear people criticize capitalism, one of the things I often hear them say is that, sure, capitalism delivers the goods, but it deadens the soul. I think you disagree. Why? Yeah. The, uh, the whole project is, a, a, as you say, is a defense of capitalism. But, of course, the... The standard way that we as economists defend capitalism is precisely this claim that, which I think is correct, that it delivers the goods and we get air conditioners and large cars and so forth. But if we're going to really answer the, the concerns of our friends on both the left and the right, we need to look into whether or not it's true that um, participation in a in a market is corrupting, and there's there you know since the since the Sermon on the Mount and before there 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 have been claims that that's true, and I I don't think it is. I, I think that uh, on the contrary, participation in in a market is the as the French said in the 18th century, with the matter of uh, the du commerce, sweet commerce, and that, in fact, you can make a case that we're ethically improved by adopting capitalism. And Adam Smith felt that way. Yes. Uh, Adam Smith felt that capitalism, and by... it's an interesting word, right? Yeah. Uh, we're really talking here about commerce. I like, I like Wordsworth's uh, condemnation, yeah. which I don't agree with, but I like the way he said it. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. That's right. And I think there's some truth to that. I think the pursuit of the material can hurt our appreciation of the immaterial. Yeah. Uh, but Adam Smith felt that it, it had many enhancing virtues, the, the role of commerce in our lives. And so what was his... What was his perspective? Well, it, 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 in, in, in order to learn his perspective, people have to read his other book as well, not just The Wealth of Nations, but the theory of moral um, sentiments. And a, a lot of economists and economic thinkers are, are not even aware that he wrote this other book. And it's, it's in the context of the his first and, and other book, um, uh, a context of ethics, a context of virtues 
mainly about prudence. But it's it's not the 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 wealth of nations is not a recommendation that we run our lives on prudence alone. That's why it's so important to bear in mind that other book. It's, it's perfectly true that getting and spending can waylight their power, but so can so can any other obsession. So can an a um, an unjust obsession with one's religious opinions, for example, or an um, unloving uh, obsession with physical uh, courage. All those, all those, you know, um, this only (laughs) ways of thinking about who we are um, uh, can lay waste their powers. So, so, Smith was recommending. And I should mention that that both uh, the Wealth of Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments are are available online at at no cost in wonderfully searchable editions at the Library of Economics and Liberty, which uh, we are part of, and we'll have links up to those uh, texts uh, as part of this podcast. But I like your point that obsession is is dangerous. Uh, Monetary or material obsession is a very common... Uh, obsession, but there are others, and I think um, one of Smith's themes, if, if I'm correct, you can let me know if I'm wrong, is the importance of um, more than one virtue. The the one you mentioned in the Wealth of Nations is prudence, which we think of as I think one way to think about it is rational economic man, always striving to maximize utility and and get right. the best deal and weigh costs. Max, you, I call him. What do you call it? I call him Max. You. Yeah. His first name is Max. Yeah, Max U, where the U stands for utility in formal economic theory. Um, But that is the road to a very, I think, dissatisfying life, um, would be Smith's point, and I think most people's points. Most people people don't live a Max U life. Uh, Most people aren't Max U, don't want to be Max U, and certainly don't behave only that way. Yeah. What are the implications for uh, economists in thinking about the world, given that people don't always behave that way? We often... Treat them as if they act that way, but that's not the only part of human nature. You know, well, of course, we're we're as as economists, we're 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 specialists in prudence only. That is, um, and I, you, you, we have both you, you and I have written whole books and and, and numerous articles um, making Maxu type points. Um, but we've got to be careful about over-specializing. I mean, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, the, um, the psychologists will take care of the virtue of temperance, and the lawyers will take care of the virtue of, of justice, and the theologians will take care of um, uh, spiritual love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the, and the soldiers' courage and so forth. So we economists can specialize on prudence only. That, as you say, is not what Adam Smith recommended, not at all. And and I and a number of other people would like to get back to a Smithian economics that, although it it, it didn't throw away the, the very numerous insights that we get 
thinking of people as maximizers, maximizers in this narrow sense, uh, acknowledges that the, 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 the temperance and justice and love and courage and hope and faith can change the way the economy works. I mean, for example, I've gotten interested recently in the economics of religion. Um, and as a believer myself, I'm a little distressed by the Gary Becker-type argument that um, religions are only about social capital, only about um, you know contacts for your business or something like that, when after all they're about belief in Christ or or the Talmud or, or something like that. Well, we had a we had an earlier podcast with Larry Anacone yeah. on the economics of religion, and it is a um, Larry's work, which is very creative and I think insightful, looks at the um, what the prudence only approach, the Max U yeah. approach, tells us about the human pursuit of the divine, and I think Larry would be the first to admit that it leaves a lot out, but it has, yeah. but it has many insights that one does not get without it. Absolutely. Um, so it it. it it is, in some sense, an an issue of balance. Yes. And and I I should mention, this came up in a recent podcast with I think it did with Stephen Margolin. Um, we talked about Dennis Robertson. Dennis Robertson has a wonderful quote. But Robertson was a early I think twentieth century uh, British economist. He was indeed. And he made a he said a wonderful thing. He said economics lets us. Uh, or I think our economic system lets us economize on love. Yes. And what he meant by that is that by dealing with a bunch of strangers for most of our daily needs uh, and desires, sorry about that word needs there. Um, <laughs> you taught me not to use the word need. And never, never. I don't use it in the class. If I'm in the classroom, it never comes out. But occasionally when I'm talking to normal human beings, which I feel like I'm doing in these podcasts, I use it as a intensifier of the word desire, but yeah. I apologize for that. Uh, Inelastic but, demand curve there, that's yeah, what we call it. Vertical demand curves don't exist, <laughs> but um, so hard that. But as we turn to strangers for the things we want yeah. and like, uh, food, clothing, and shelter, um, that allows us, is what I think Robertson was saying, to uh, save our love, not for the people we trade with, but for our loved ones, which yeah. is a good idea because we can't love all the people that are out in the world. Sure. We can only say that we do. So I think this theme that love belongs in economics and courage and these other virtues has been there, yeah. uh, going back to Adam Smith. And, and and you and I, of course, write about it all the time. Yeah. It just doesn't make it into the textbooks. Yeah. So the one argument would be, well, so what? So what if you know, we specialize in teaching our students about the virtues of maximizing and what the implications of that are. We, surely we leave out a lot of stuff. Um, is there anything more to say? Well, I, I, I think Steve Marlin, um in his, in his recent book made exactly the correct argument that there's a danger in this talk of corrupting community. That is, if we, if we keep saying to each other, greed is good, greed is good, don't 
worry. There's no need. We, we're we're economizing on love. We can let's 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 take love off the table. So far as our our economic lives are concerned, that has the danger that if you talk that way, you'll start acting that way. And that is as as um, as Deep says, and as Yannakoni also says. He's a believer like me. Um, uh, it can be corrupting of our uh, spiritual lives, of our of our lo- lo- uh, of our lives of love. What I think is wrong in Steve's book is that he 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 thinks as a lot of people do. Well, here here he. He's, as it were, persuaded by the notion that markets are these anonymous, arm's length um, transactions. Green eye shade. Exactly. Calculate. You got your calculator out, trying yes. to get the best possible deal. Never leave a dollar on the table. Green eye shade person, and he's way far away. He's off in China or somewhere, and we and we don't need to be concerned about him. But in fact, I think our, the actual life of markets is much more, as sociologists say, embedded than um, our official models, especially our Samuelsonian models, our models that Max you allow. I, I think that's been one of the problems in the last half century is the way that Max U as a mathematical technique, which Paul Samuelson introduced, has um, kind of taken over the field like some invasion of the body uh, uh, snatchers, and, and, and people have forgotten that people live in communities, and that they like communities, and that so they make the office a community. You know, sometimes it's a bad community, sometimes it's a good community, but, you know, people like little families, and they're always making economic transactions symbolically or more more. It's only been a 60-year bad run. There's always <laughs> chance that we'll overturn it, um, which I, I think would be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm going to read a quote from the book, uh, which, uh, which I love. From Steve's book? Or no, from your book, yeah. uh, which I think is an, is a, uh, an antidote to this uh, view that, that material well-being somehow destroys community, uh, yeah. which I think is a silly argument. You say it, yeah. you say it very well. Um, it's on page 24. It reads like this. Quote, I claim that actually existing capitalism, not the collectivism of the left or of the right, has reached beyond mere consumption, producing the best art and the best people. People have purposes. A capitalist economy gives them scope to try them out. Go to an American Kennel Club show or an antique show or a square dancing convention or to a gathering of the many millions of American bird watchers, and you'll find people of no social pretensions passionately engaged. Yes, some people watch more than four hours of TV a day. Yes, some people engage in corrupting purchases, but they are no worse than their ancestors and, on average, better. So I'd like to – you make some claims along those lines in the book about the better. Um, Steve and others, uh, I think, tend to romance and have a lot of nostalgia for the past. Um, Give us a historical perspective on those – 
quaint communities of the past versus those allegedly inferior ones of today? Well, I'm, I've, I have been at one time or another an agricultural historian of England, and if you look into the actual um, societies, to the extent we can, of the 13th and 14th century, you find, for example, that the, 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 the parade of violent crime um, in these wonderful, supposedly socialist villages, these uh, closed corporate communities um, uh, that people like James uh, uh, Scott are so entranced with, is much higher than in any slum community in the United States now. People killed each other and and, and, and blipped each other on the head with alarming uh, um, 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 uh, um, frequency in those times. And and I think the, the sweet commerce development of the last couple of centuries has been precisely to make us rich enough that we don't feel we have to um, steal, um, um, satisfied enough with our conditions that we aren't always breaking out in, in violence towards each other. I mean, what, what, the, what, what the Marxists say is that on the contrary, things have gotten worse over the last couple of centuries in those, those, those connections. And I, I just don't think that's right. I think, I think Marx and Engels themselves um, uh, pointed out that the progress of uh, bourgeois capitalism, even up to 1848, had freed millions of people from what they called the idiocy of rural life. <laughs> and the subsequent developments have, have created these gigantic opportunities for all of us to go to the American Cattle Club show or read Shakespeare or have discussions about socialism versus capitalism, that our ancestors, you know, <laughs> our ancestors just had no chance to do. Um, I suppose you and I are both descended from from peasants, as most of the, the, the people who hear this are. No doubt. And, uh, you know, there are no descendants of the crowned heads of Europe in large numbers. Most people didn't have these opportunities. Our friend Tyler Cohen is, is very sound on this point. He, he argues that, that often, um, uh, in, in actual fact, capitalist societies like Athens in the 5th and 4th century or Florence in the, in the, uh, in the 14th and 15th centuries and 16th centuries, were amazingly creative uh, 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 places. So, you know, I guess I think the news is on the whole good. It's not perfect. Not but aren't, perfect, aren't but we spending? Aren't we in the old days? We, you know, we were out in the fields with our with our brethren and sisterin, oh, yeah. um sharing uh, honest labor. Oh, you bet. Uh, eating the food we grew ourselves, oh, uh, yeah. connected to the earth, and now. We yeah. just we go through Walmart exploiting uh, Chinese awful. people, and uh, yeah. all we care about is getting a good price. Uh, yeah, isn't life thin and gruesome and grim? You know, there's a there's a very interesting history of history to be 
about how that idea about the Middle Ages arose. In the Middle Ages, people didn't think that that's what the Middle Ages was like. Um, they, in fact, engaged in, in commerce about everything. Uh, um, uh, husbands were available for sale. Marketplaces were available for sale. Eternal salvation was available for sale. Um, the, um, but there was no prostitution, was there? That no, was of a, course not. Good, okay, that, that was a joke. No, they, so so there, there, was, um, there was trade and commerce of a very thoroughgoing uh, sort in the Middle Ages, and the amount of self, self-sufficiency, which is itself not such a grand thing, is uh, tremendously exaggerated. But in the 19th century, in a history influenced by German Romanticism, there developed this idea that most educated people have, that somehow there's a world we have lost that was wonderful. But the actual historians who know the world we have lost say, well, you know, there's a world we have lost, but don't be so nostalgic, as you say, about it. It had a lot of very nasty uh, features. And the main nasty feature it had is that people were not, even though there was commerce, they were not encouraged to be commercial and inventive, and they were, um, although they were not entirely bound by tradition, tradition and the the uh, opinion of the old woman up the street were much more important than they are in, in, a, in a modern society. Well, it's kind of ironic. I never thought about it, but the um, when I think of this, this sort of uh, quintessential um, artistic indictment of capitalism uh, for a popular audience, I think of modern times. Yeah, uh, Charlie Chaplin, which sees man in a capitalist system as a cog in a machine, yeah. tightening the same bolt over yeah. and over and over again on an assembly line. Yeah. Of course, most of human history capitalist or pre-capitalist, was quite a bit like that. Um, of course it was. Uh, harvesting the, the grain was a lot like tightening a bolt on a machine. You're out there oh, with scythe, swinging it all day long, and human yeah. beings in the modern world, yeah. in post-industrial America, are much less machine-like. And we Absolutely. have machines that do those things now, that do the harvest and tighten Absolutely. the bolts and do the welds. And um, it seems like a better world. Uh, I don't think yeah. anybody does. Anybody really, even the people who nostalgic, who are nostalgic about it, don't want to go work on those uh, work no. on those farms. I don't think. No, they certainly don't. I have worked as an agricultural uh, laborer, and I've worked as a uh, highway construction person as well. And and I and and I know the pleasures of exercising one's uh, um, body. But honest, I also know that toil. and 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 um, and unsatisfying toil in the end. I mean, Charlie himself is an excellent example of. I mean, Charles uh, Chaplin is an excellent example of the opportunities that capitalism provided. Here's this Englishman um, who ends up as a star in um, Hollywood, which allows him to. And, Make the film Modern Times, which is saying that capitalism makes everyone into a wage slave, 
and it's sort of it's sort of absurd. Yeah. There's there's a there's a a, a, a somewhat cruel um, remark that the other Marx Guru Groucho Marx made to a made to a friend of his when the friend came who was unemployed in the 1930s and came to Groucho and his, his this friend was a Marxist himself. And uh, Groucho was was aware of that, and his, his his friend asked Groucho for a job, and and Groucho said with a laugh, "No, I'm not going to give, give you a job. I don't want to make you a wage slave." And yeah. said, "You know that yeah, um, ordinary life in olden times was very unpleasant. There, much worse than harvesting was threshing." which involves, somewhat surprisingly, hundreds and hundreds of hours of work. And what threshing was is you had a, a stick attached to another stick, and you flailed away <laughs> at the grain to, after it had dried out, to shake off the, um, the corn, the, the, the stuff you could eat. And this was a major task in the wintertime, and it was just horrible. And there's an awful, awful lot of that in traditional life. But, but bear in mind that it's not just that we've escaped from that kind of physical routine that's the, that's the, the good thing here, but the claim that I'm making in the book is that, is that having responsibility um, for yourself, being allowed to, to go from job to job, um, having responsibility for own, your own consumption choices and so on, improves you ethically. So it's not just that we don't have to thresh all, all, all winter, but that we're, um, we're self Well, in a way, we're sort of self-respecting capitalists, all of us. All of us own some human capital. Right. Yeah, we're um, our most important product that we sell is ourselves. As as Adam Smith um, said, he said in in this way, every man, and of course he always said man, every man is a um, is a is a merchant. Yep. Uh, before we leave this topic, I, I want to mention my own agricultural past because I don't get to talk about it very often. Uh, I it, it lasted for less than a uh, a week. The worst part of it. Yeah. Uh, I was on a kibbutz, uh, oh, yeah. a teenager in the Negev in the southern wow. part of Israel. It'd be about 110 in the heat of the day. So you, yeah, yeah. you had the yet we were American volunteers, so we had the uh, choice opportunity of only working uh, from 4 a.m. to 11 because yeah. you know it's American. Americans don't like working in the sun at 110 degrees, and they wouldn't have gotten any volunteers. But they they worked us from four to eleven, and uh-huh. most days I picked peaches, which is remarkably um, uh, unexciting. But but much less exciting was the other job I had, which was there was a pipe that ran along the ground for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards, yeah. and out of that pipe dripped water uh, oh, yeah. to irrigate the field. And because it was laying on the ground, dust and dirt would get in the little holes that the water dripped out of. So for an entire day, and maybe more than one day, it felt like more like a year, 
uh, I would squat on the ground with a pin, and every 30 or so inches was these were these holes, and I my job was to take the pin and remove the dirt and dust uh, and just make sure it was open for irrigation. And um, it made me long to work in the box factory, which was another activity on the kibbutz, uh, being a cog in a machine, tightening a bolt. Uh, so I, I do think the agricultural life is... Um, I think inaccurately represented mainly by people who've never lived it. Uh, sure, because the, their idea of agricultural life is gardening. You know, and, and even gardening is kind of hard. But but you know, uh, people hear you. The, it's the, a difference between a hobby and a and a. Exactly. <laughs> when you when you have to be out there for eight or ten hours a day, that's quite a different matter. More like twelve, I think. More like twelve in the in the summertime when yep. there's still light. Yep. So you, what, what happens, of course, is that people are seen to move voluntarily from agricultural employment to these terrible jobs in the early mills of, you know, turning a wheel from for, from turning a wheel from turning a wheel from left to right because they preferred them. They were better jobs. They were inside for one thing. Don't the Marxists uh, call that false consciousness? Yeah, you? that's right. It is. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a false consciousness that's. Um, that, that, for example, in China now, it's a false consciousness that is very widely held by millions and millions of people. They move from this state of partial employment in poor villages in uh, in China to jobs in um, Shanghai and on the east coast. Uh, I mean, in the west coast. Yeah, east coast uh, generally, um, where they're earning. Much more, but not very much, and they're working um, eleven months of the year for you know six days a week. So I there's a there's a uh, there's a freedom point here. When people have the choice, they choose a capitalist life. In fact, the capitalist life is a life of free choice. Now, what the, what the Marxist claim is, is that this free choice enslaves other people. But the trouble with that argument is that it depends on this notion of unequal exchange. It depends on the notion that when I make a deal with you, I'm making you a wage slave. Groucho Marx had the theory exactly right. If we want to go back to that, we can always reject free trade, both foreign and domestic, and go back to working 12 hours a day in agriculture. But I don't think we do. Although some people do it, and and they're welcome to it. Uh, There are people who who either for emotional or whatever reasons sure. um, want to live that life, and they're scattered around America. And that's fine. And I'm that's, all for it. Yeah, I, I think God it's bless fine. Them. Um, I mean, for, for instance, I, I know some Amish people in Iowa, and they do choose a hard life of physical toil for on um, spiritual grounds. And, and that, I think, is, 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 is marvelous and okay. 
um, I just don't want to do it myself. Yeah, and and they they um, they have some modern accoutrements. Um, yeah, although like a, you know, carefully regulated. They're steel tire Amish, and they're a rubber tire Amish, and yeah. <laughs> they're ones who allow you to have electricity as long as it's it's, it's generated on the farm itself. And they're yeah, and I have no problem with that. I think yeah. you know people. People make fun of that, like they're cheating, and they've, no. they've chosen to to have certain restrictions. They have yep. decided that what comes with modernism has costs that they don't want to pay. And well, I, I, and I, indeed we all do. Yeah, um, that's a good you point. Know, I don't read the, the Goof Gossip sheets. I think it's bad for one's soul. Um, I don't uh, uh, watch TV five hours a day, although I do watch a lot of TV. Well, I don't have cable. Uh, because that's well, my way of restricting my um, temptations to. Yeah, well, I, I once tried to be without TV for a couple of years, and it was good. It was great. We played a lot of board games, and yeah. my family, and it was fun. But so indeed, one one makes a choice, and it's an ethical choice. It and because the under there's a there's there's a very widespread mistake, which I think a lot of economists make to think of ethics only as being about how you treat other people. But in fact, it's also, and it has been since the, since the Greeks and the Hebrews and before, about how you treat yourself and about how you treat your God, whoever your God is. Your God can be um, science or, or, or the uh, revolution or, or, or whatever. Those two things, how you treat yourself and how you treat your God, have to be involved in it, too. It's not just about how you treat other uh, people. And my my point in my book is that those other things, the, trans, the, the transcendent God and, and the self, are not uh, um, necessarily uh, damaged by capitalism. They can be if we insist on the Samosonian theory of Max U as the only thing we need to consider. Um, but but they don't have to be. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I, I got you off the track on my revel, reverie about um, Kibbutz life in the 1970s, which um, is something that, of course, uh, most Kibbutz residents are uh, leaving the farm once they've seen yeah. Paris. Uh, yeah. They they do long for a less communal. Uh, more dynamic, vi- you know, yeah. vital existence other than agricultural life. I forgot to mention, by the way, that when I was stooping down, there was always this tension. And since there, these little holes in the pipe were only 30 uh, inches apart, it was a temptation to think you could reach a second one yeah. uh, without having to get up again. But it didn't really. It was sort of a, uh, a Sisyphusian task. You had yeah. to get up and get down every time. And when I was doing this hideous task, I always tried to think that I was – I wasn't just cleaning out a, a pipe with a pen. I was making the desert bloom. But that, <laughs> well, you that, were. I was, but it, it, it just, after an hour, it, it kind of, you're, <laughs> well, you're cleaning a pipe with a pen. Uh, well, but I, I got you off your point, which was this idea that, that capitalism uh, doesn't just deliver the goods. Uh, it doesn't just keep us from having to be stooping every 30 inches and, right. and working the assembly line. It also uh, makes us more ethical. So, I, 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 yeah. why? 
what about capitalism makes us what's ethical? And well, use use this point you've just brought up about the way we treat ourselves. Well, uh, you're, uh, there are a number of sort of converging uh, causes of this improvement. One thing is longer life expectancy, which comes along with modern prosperity. That counts. That counts <laughs> because then you you're. To, to think in prudence-only terms, in economic, uh, Samsonian terms, your investment in yourself becomes more important because because your life is longer. If you're going to die at age 35, there isn't a heck of a lot of point in um, you know g- engaging in spiritual exercises. You're going to be dead before it matters. And then, of course, when you're when you have a high income, you're you're able to. Um, read and become educated and so on. And indeed, one of the very important things that, that, that the modern world affords is a long, a long time out of, the, uh, out of the workforce at the beginning when you're being educated. I mean, extremely long. In the old days, of course, all our ancestors went to work at age 14. But then also a, a long retirement uh, um, afterwards. And if the retirement isn't devoted to uh, foolish indulgences, then, then that's, a, that's a spiritual improvement. But, but in any case, a, a, a life in capitalism values the individual. The individual is encouraged to think of herself as mattering um, in the sense that she's making decisions for herself. They aren't being made by the central planner. They aren't being made by the uh, by, by, by tradition or the neighbors. It's, it's the fantastic choiciness of modern, modern capitalism that constantly brings before us ethical um, choices about how we want to be. This is a point that anthropologists make all the time, regardless of what kind of society they're talking about. They point out quite, quite correctly that material consumption is not about material things. It's about self-definition. It's not just about entertainment and pleasure and how much ice cream you, you, you can eat in your life, which, which tends to be the way we, we economists think about these things. But it's about meaning, right? And, and in a uh, world with, uh, you know, think of all the jobs that a modern young person can 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 think of having. Um, think of all the various kinds of people you can make yourself into. I have, I have a friend, an anthropologist friend who grew up in Canada, and he agreed with me that in the 19, 1950s, as a teenager, there were only two possibilities. You could be a, um, a normal teenager, or you could be a rocker. A rebel. <laughs> That's right. Those are the only two. You could either be uh, an ordinary person or you could be uh, James Dean. Yep. And that was it. Those were the two opportunities. Whereas now, we speak to our, 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 our kids.
kids and our grandkids about what what's going on in high schools, and there are 30 possibilities. Uh, um, being a nonconformist conformist or a conforming nonconformist, or you know, all kinds of ways of being a, a human, and putting that responsibility on people, saying to them, look. You get to choose, as John Adams, um, what kind of a person you're going to be. And every every act of consumption or um, or social behavior that you engage in is part of your your making of yourself, as uh, as John Adams is. It's possible. Whereas in um, you know, if you're a member of a certain caste in, in India in the old days, you're just stuck in that one caste and you have to do that one occupation forever. And so it was in, in our um, societies in, 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 in Europe or in Africa in the old days. What does that have to do with capitalism, though? Some would say that's merely a cultural change. America's a more open society. And yeah. Do you think that's a result of, of our wealth? Well, it's not just our wealth. It's the way capitalism works. I mean, capitalism is, a, as you, we, we, you, you, you and I certainly agree, is a matter of making deals, and they're mutually advantageous, advantageous if uh, force and fraud isn't involved. And that kind of a person who who's, takes responsibility is, is a rather novel Idea. I mean, as I said before, there was there was trade and commerce in the Middle Ages. Things were for sale. It was a monetized economy, and so on and so forth. There was money, but the kind of person you were was very restricted by what they used to call the great chain of being, from the from the king down to the the you know the dog in the house. There was a chain of being, and you fit into it at birth. And that was it. Now that doesn't mean there wasn't any social mobility at all. There certainly was, but not the the the, the, the ideas that the society had about itself, regardless of whether or not they were true, were not those of mo- mobility and choice. Whereas we have all these these choices, and it comes with capitalism. Certainly, centrally planned socialism doesn't come with choice. And even some of the um, some of the socialisms that my mo- modern Marxist friends advocate, um, uh, 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 worker ownership, for example, have um, an unsatisfactory element of, of compulsion in them. The very word responsibility did not become did not come to have its modern sense until the early 19th century. In English, before it meant <laughs> answering, right? Right. Having a response, but this ethical sense of responsibility is very much tied in with the way capitalism works. You know, if capitalism had not paid off in invention—it's not mainly accumulation that does it—but invention. Still, capitalism would be a good, good idea because it's, it's, it's a system of personal responsibility. Well, let me give a counterpoint to that. Do. Although I, 
I find myself very sympathetic to it. And I romanticize that freedom and that yes. those choices, uh, as I think you've just done. Yes. Uh, and I think it's good to romanticize it, because I don't yep. think people appreciate the scope for human expression that our current modern lives give us. They That's take right. it for granted, and they don't realize that the world was very different. So I think it's good to be rhapsodic about yep. it. Um, but the counterpoint would be, well... You know, we're university professors. We have, yeah. uh, we're highly educated. We have this yeah, yeah. this freedom to read all these wonderful books and think these creative thoughts. And if we were talented, we could actually be entrepreneurs and and more innovative, uh, and and improve people's lives even more. But so many people can't do that. You know, they yeah. lead they lead the equivalent of uh, of a 16th century life with just less security. I mean, they can be fired. Yeah. Uh, they don't have the community uh, village safety net. They're required to rely on an imperfect government system that's uh, too uh, cheap because right. of, of ideologues like you and me right. who think that uh, government is is destructive. Right. Uh, what what's your response to that? Well, um, besides besides laughter now and then, but what's your intellectual response? One thing to say is, of course, that. There weren't any safety nets in the Middle Ages. People say there were, but there weren't. Um, if there had been safety nets, people would not have been obsessed as they were with um, security. And you can see this in, in, now this will sound strange, but you can see this in fairy tales. If you go back to the Grimm's tales and read them as what they are, um, historical documents, frozen pieces of 14th century or 16th century um, economic history, there's no, there, there is no theme in the Grimm's fairy tales of being helped by your community. So if, in fact, modern welfare uh, uh, states who do more in the way of helping the community as a whole than than actually happened in the past. But okay, that historical point aside, um, what I would claim is that these uh, so-called safety nets, even when they work very well, as in places like Sweden or Holland, um, are a small part of government expenditure. That mainly what what the safety net turns out to be is a way of employing university graduates for uh, jobs in the government. Um, so I have this kind of cynical libertarian view of all this. And and there is the great danger, which I think is true, of people saying, I gave it the office. I don't need to um, uh, uh, exercise real concern for my for, 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 for my uh, neighbor. Because after all, she can go down to the local um, government office and, and, and be saved. You know, <laughs> look at at Katrina. Um, people, the the government forces worked extremely poorly in helping people in Katrina, and the private forces. Walmart, <laughs> individual church groups, sheer individuals, 
I I I accept that there's a um, romantic quality, and I and uh, to uh, the celebration of capitalism as there is of the celebration of socialism, and one needs to be careful of those romanticisms. That's why in my book I I. I try to do empirical work, so to speak. I try to actually look at how things are. Let me um, let me shift gears and um, and ask you about the discipline of economics, which is a, a sub theme in the book that you talk about. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about it today. I want to take a take us on a different route, though. Yeah. Um, you were my teacher of uh, microeconomics. Yeah. And uh, ages ago, and uh, I learned a great deal from you in a in a particular style of economic teaching, yeah. uh, which I think of as uh, applied price theory, uh, puzzle solving, um, yeah. intuition based economics. Um, that was so. Oh, I think that was about uh, about thirty years ago, a little over yeah. thirty years ago. Yeah. Uh, if anything, in the 30 years that have passed, our profession has become more Samuelsonian, more yes. mathematical, less intuitive, less yeah. applied. Uh, you and I have um, drifted off the reservation and, and gotten interested in, in sinful subjects like sociology and anthropology and psychology, things that... Theology, that, too. And what? in theology, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and gotten interested in the, in the divine and, and, and in right. love and courage, things that were viewed with... Um, Great snootiness at the University of Chicago in 1976. Um, but where do you see, let me say it differently, where would you like economics to go if you had your druthers? Now, you, you don't have your druthers, you and I. Yeah. We're, we're nibbling around the edges here trying to move it in a more uh, balanced direction, or as you yeah. would call it. But where would you like it to go? What do you think we ought to be teaching uh, 18-year-olds and and 22-year-olds about economics, either at the graduate or undergraduate level? Well, you know, the, the, to put it in a single name, it would be Adam Smith. We could become a more um, Smithian economics, which, as I said at the beginning, is, a, is an economics where um, maximizing the solving of maxu puzzles is in a context of ethics where the economic actor is thought of as being a human uh, in, instead of a maximizing machine. Um, but I have all kinds of thoughts about um, how to teach 18-year-olds with, with um, Steve. Zilliac and Arya Klammer, I've been working on a long time, a, 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 um, a book called The Economic Conversation, which is an elementary book in which the students and the faculty are urged to talk about economics. Not the faculty members saying, look, here's how it is, but to, for them to converse about what this stuff means um, as, as social thought, and I think that's a good way to go for the elementary students, for the more advanced students, for the graduate students. 
it would be very nice if we stopped um, engaging in this uh, um, terrific abstraction. It's, I think you and I agree, it's not the mass itself that's the problem. It's the, um, it's, it's the thinking that, that mathematical thought is the same thing as economic thought. That's what, what bothers me. That um, I mean, obviously, mathematics is a tool. The particular kind of math we use is probably the wrong kind, but that's okay. Math is a tool. And a, what, it's like being against words. You wouldn't be against words. And indeed, math is a language and all that. But if all we do is run MACU models over and over again, and that's, I'm afraid, what the professional um, scholarship in economics is like, it's kind of pointless. It's, it's, I call it chess problems. It's not even chess, and it's certainly not war. <laughs> it's chess problems. And we, yeah, I would sure like our graduate programs to get away from from chess problems. The same thing, as you know, holds for, in my views, on econometrics, the statistical part of economics, which I think has gotten way, way off the point. Yeah. Billy, I can. I just finished a book, uh, just published a book called The Cult of Statistical Significance, which, again, is not against the, the math. It's against the gross misuse of the math. I look forward to that book. And, uh, you know, we had a podcast with uh, Robert Frank, yeah. who is also pushing this idea of economic conversation. Not, not exactly like that, but I think that is really the same idea that we learn uh, by talking. Yep. And I think uh, I like to think that these podcasts are a version of that 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 our listeners yep. get to hear two people talking. Uh, oh, I think they are. I think you're you're doing the uh, the you're doing the you're you're doing the Lord's work, dear. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I like to think I am, uh, even outside the podcast. But um, it's interesting because my personal uh, intellectual revolt against Max Hu is pushed me in a Hayekian direction. As listeners to this podcast are well aware, I'm, I'm very interested in emergent phenomenon. And yeah. what, what I've struggled with is that the insights of Hayek about how markets work and the insights from, from your price theory class of 30 years ago, which yeah. are uh, fundamentally non-mathematical, they're represented in graphs yeah. and, tr- and uh, still, but which have a mathematical or flavor to them. But... But the, the style of the thinking that underlies those graphs is not there's no there's no easy answer. There's no the answer is never seventeen. The answer is yeah. well, if this is true, then this will hold. And and yeah, yeah. and, and it, it's a subtler form of, of reasoning that, that we try to convey to our students. What I struggle with, and we're almost out of time and we'll close on this, is that either of those uh, pedagogical strategies, either yeah. the use of of emergent market-based thinking or the conversational uh, exploration of, of concepts, they're very hard to write exams for. Yeah. And I think what's holding back true economic education in the university setting is our compulsion to grade. Yeah. And in, yeah, the, absence, agree. in the absence of that compulsion, you and I can educate as we're trying to do in this podcast. We can 
hold yeah. seminars with grad students listening in. We yeah. can listen to grad students hold forth and critique them, and they learn from that. Sure. But when you have to give a grade, and yeah. it's time-consuming to give a grade, yeah. uh, we fall back on these Max U problems yeah. where the answer is 17 so I can have it graded by the computer. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and I, and I think it's a, it's, a, um, it's a problem. One of the, the structural problems in American education is that in, instead of having a final exam at the end of your career, as they do in England, and then your, how you graduate depends on that, each course has its final exam. So each instructor, instead of being a coach, is an examiner. But I think you raise a crucial point here, that language is how an economy operates. This is how I've, I've come to think in the last couple of years. And it's how a science operates. I mean, an emergent market is a, is a, is a talk shop. It's people talking to each other about deals that make things happen. And the, the conversation of, of, uh, of learning is the same way. And as the Austrians say, I think they're quite right, these conversations are creative. And that's why they can't be formulated as exam clue questions. Because if they're really creative, you know, if, if you were so smart, why aren't you rich? If there was a formula for um, uh, knowing what the emergent market was going to bring, or knowing what the conversation of economics was going to bring, or knowing what the conversation in the classroom was going to bring, bring if all these things were formulas, then there wouldn't be any point in having the conversation. Yeah, you could just read it. It's like reading, uh, hey. reading, um, you know, the set of um, proofs or a set I mean, of proofs. It's, it's, it's information in in the very restricted sense of information, and I think that's where economics needs to go analytically speaking, as Adam Smith did, talk about the role of language in the economy. Yeah, and it, it very well may be that that the best economic education tragically takes place outside the classroom. I'm afraid so. Um, and, I, you know, we see an explosion of books uh, that try to reach a broader market. And yeah. That's partly the result of our wealth uh, that we're talking about. Yeah. And... Um, Maybe that's the best we can hope for. Yep. But I hope not. Uh, I like. To, <laughs> I don't want to close on that depressing note. I, I do have hope for universities. Um, well, as my, as my, the, the best advice I ever got was from my high school driving instructor. He said, "Aim high in steering," which is very sound advice. So let's aim high and hope we can persuade our our colleagues to have a real conversation about economics. My guest today has been Deirdre McCluskey of the University of Illinois at Chicago, author of The Bourgeois Virtues. Deirdre, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.